Good morning. Let's take out your copy of the scriptures and turn to 2 Samuel chapter 12. As we continue to make our way through the book of 2 Samuel, we find ourselves once again in this narrative of David and Bathsheba. Hopefully you know the backstory well by now. Uh, David commits adultery with Bathsheba and then arranges to have her husband, uh, Uriah the Hittite, killed in battle. Even though it seems, uh, humanly speaking, like he's going to get away with it all, or Uriah's dead and the sin is hidden, well, not so fast, because the Lord who sees everything sends Nathan the prophet to confront David on his sin. And last week we studied that confrontation. Uh, Nathan tells a story of two men, uh, a rich man who has everything and a poor man who has only this one lamb. And the rich man heartlessly takes the lamb from the poor man. And the injustice and the, the cruelty of the story it so enrages David that he interrupts Nathan and he pronounces a death sentence on the rich man. As the Lord lives... The man who has done this deserves to die. What he doesn't realize, of course, is that the story is really about him. Uh, The rich man taking the lamb from the poor man, it's really about David taking Bathsheba from Uriah. So Nathan turns the tables on David. You are the man. You are the rich man. You are the one who did that. Uh, your own self, right? That's who you are pronouncing judgment on. Then Nathan, as a prophet of God, speaks the direct words of God himself. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. God reminds David of all the blessings he had given him, anointing him king over Israel, delivering him from the hand of Saul, uh, giving him the kingdom, giving him everything he could have possibly wanted, uh, and all that blessing and all that kindness and all that favor that makes the accusation against David, verse 9, that much more powerful. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? Uh, There are going to be some significant consequences to his sin which we'll basically spend the rest of our time in 2 Samuel talking about. But for a man after God's own heart, like that must have been the knockout punch. Why have you despised the word of the Lord? And then again, verse 10. This is again, God speaking directly to David through his prophet. I mean, can you imagine how David felt here? This is the all-powerful God of the universe. The thrice holy God who rules over all, the the just judge to whom we must give account, this is that God speaking directly to David, saying, you have despised me. How does David respond to such accusations? How is David going to respond to this confrontation? You see, if he responds anything like most sovereigns back then would have responded when confronted on their sin by silencing the word, by killing the prophet, ignoring the rebuke, hardening his heart. Well, if he does that, the life of David goes down an entirely different path. But David, the man after God's own heart, 
God's chosen covenant king, the forerunner to the Christ, well, God gives him grace to respond exactly as he should. Look at verse 13. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. David repents. If we define repentance as turning away from sin and turning towards God in faith, that's exactly what we see David doing here. And I realize that much of modern Christianity don't really talk about repentance anymore because, well, primarily because we don't talk much about sin anymore. I mean, why focus on such uh, negative and difficult topics when we could be talking about positive and feel-good things? I'm certainly not against positive and feel-good things. As a matter of fact, I would argue that the gospel, right, there's nothing that will make you feel more positive and good than the gospel message that we preach every week, that Christ died for our sins to make us right with a holy God. But you see, essential to that glorious gospel message that we love so much, that brings us so much joy, is understanding the gravity of sin. It is understanding the necessity of repentance. Because it's our sin that makes that gospel necessary, and it's our repentance that God uses to draw us to himself. Any preaching that leaves out sin and repentance merely in an attempt to be positive and feel good, well, that's not preaching the full gospel. And so is repentance hard to talk about? Is it challenging to think about? Is it difficult to apply? Yeah, it is. But it's also an essential part of living a happy, joyful, positive, feel-good life of walking closely with the Lord. I think Luther hit the nail on the head when he started his 95 thesis. So uh, this is thesis number one of 95. The statement that Jesus willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Right? That is, the, the joyful, gospel-centered life is one marked by ongoing repentance. This is not just something that you do once in your life, right? Like at your conversion. Where that's when I repented of my sins and, and trusted in Christ. No, it's something that should constantly mark, continually mark the life of the believer. And so what I want to do this morning is to think in detail about David's repentance and what are things that we can learn from his example in terms of repentance in our own lives. And to do that, we'll look not only at 2 Samuel 12, uh, but also one of the psalms that David wrote around this time. Uh, it's a psalm that really is like the longer version of 2 Samuel 12, 13. And I'm referring, of course, to Psalm 51. Turn there real quick, and you're going to want to keep a finger or like a bookmark or something like that in 2 Samuel 12 and another one in Psalm 51 because we're going to be turning back and forth a lot today. I just want you to look at the heading there. The superscription of Psalm 51. This is to the choir master... A psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. That's referring to 2 Samuel 12. And so while 2 Samuel 12, 13, right, that's brief, it's direct, it's succinct, it's to the point. Uh, what David says there, I have sinned against the Lord. Uh, the brevity is even more pronounced in the original Hebrew. In the original Hebrew, it's just two words. 
But for all that 2 Samuel 12, 13 lacks in details, like Psalm 51 amply provides. Uh, Psalm 51 is 19 whole verses of what was going on in David's heart, even as he said what he said in 2 Samuel 12. And so it serves us as a, an invaluable resource in thinking through David's repentance in this chapter. And so what can we learn from David's example? What can we learn from his example in the Bathsheba incident about genuine repentance? Let me point out five things. First point number one, genuine repentance is more than just words. Genuine repentance is more than just words. That is truly repenting of our sin is more than just following some magic formula of penitence or uh, saying some special words. Uh, that is, it's more than David merely saying, like he does in 2 Samuel twelve thirteen, I have sinned against the Lord. Because consider this, David's predecessor, the king who came before him, King Saul, when Saul disobeyed the command of the Lord by sparing the Amalekites, and then Samuel the prophet confronted him, listen to the words that come out of Saul's mouth. 1 Samuel 15, verse 24, Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. And then again, a few verses later, just in case you missed it the first time, look at verse 30, I have sinned. And so if repentance is just about saying those magic words, right, I have sinned, then we would expect that Saul's repentance would be received as being just as genuine as David's. But they're not. Let me give you some more evidence that uh, David's repentance isn't just about some magic words that he says. Uh, you know who else says those same exact words, I have sinned? New Testament, it's Judas. Right? That Judas, you know Judas. Uh, after he betrays Jesus into the hands of the chief priests, uh, look at what he says in Matthew 27, 4. I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. But he is, Jesus often points out, he was never a believer. He was the son of perdition, right? His repentance certainly wasn't genuine. One more, just, just for fun. How about Pharaoh? Listen to what he says after the seventh plague. He says the same exact thing that David does. This time I have sinned. The Lord is in the right and I and my people are in the wrong. But that too is shown to be false repentance. How do we know that? Well, we know that because there aren't just seven plagues, right? There are more to come because the Bible says that Pharaoh continued to harden his heart. So if it isn't some magic formula that we just have to recite, well then what is repentance? Well, repentance is, uh, first and foremost, uh, at its most basic level, it's a, a change of heart. And so Saul says, I have sinned, but there's no change of heart. And he clearly demonstrates the fact that there is no change in heart by his continued evil throughout the rest of the book. And Judas says, I have sinned. 
But again, there is no change in heart. Uh, There's only a worldly grief about what he did that produces death. And Pharaoh says, I have sinned. But Exodus tells us that there's only this further hardening of his heart. There is no change of heart. But in contrast to those examples, David says, I have sinned against the Lord. And in David, there is this accompanying change of heart. There is this genuine repentance. We can see that change throughout the rest of the book of 2 Samuel. We're going to see that in the weeks to come. But for now... I want you to focus on what he writes in Psalm 51. Again, this is like the heart exposition of 2 Samuel 12, 13. This is what's going on in his heart. Look at verses 1 and 2. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Remember what David's chief sin was. Going even deeper than the adultery and deeper than the murder, it's despising the Lord. It's thinking nothing of the Lord. It's living as if the Lord does not exist, living as if his rules and his laws don't apply. Well, if that's his sin, then this is his change of heart. This is his repentance. This is him turning away from his sin and turning in faith towards God. He hates his transgressions, his iniquity, his sin. And you can notice how he uses three different terms there in Psalm 51 to describe like the full scope of his wickedness. And he desperately wants to be washed and cleansed of that. But at the same time, right, look at how he turns to God in faith. This is not just him resolving by willpower to stop doing those sins. This isn't him continuing to live as if God doesn't exist. No, this is him coming to God in full dependence, completely dependent on God's mercy, asking God for his steadfast love. As you continue through the psalm, it becomes more and more evident that those words that David says in 2 Samuel 12, 13, I have sinned, they're not just empty, formulaic words like they might have been for Saul and Judas and Pharaoh. Because look at what David says towards the end of the psalm in verse 17. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. His heart, his spirit, they're now broken before God because of his sin. And that's what genuine repentance is all about. Point number one, genuine repentance is more than just words. It's about a heart that's truly broken over sin like David's here. But sometimes, like if we're being honest, we kind of just wish repentance was a formula. You know, you feel guilty about something, like we know we've done something wrong, Just give me the word to say. Give me the steps that I need to follow so that I can clear my conscience. The Catholic Church has made a whole system of penance out of this desire for formulaic absolution. Just go to confession. Just 
have some priest tell you to do three Our Fathers and four Hail Marys, and then you're good. You don't have to feel guilty about your sin anymore. That's not what genuine repentance is about, because that requires no heart change. That has nothing to do with brokenness of heart and spirit. But even as Protestants, even as those who would look at something like that and say, that's not biblical, well, we can fall into the same trap when we try to reduce our repentance to just doing what we think we need to do or saying what we think we need to say, even while our heart remains hard against God. Just saying the words of repentance or going through the motions of repentance without any accompanying heart change. You ever tell your kids to like, apologize for doing something, something mean to their sibling? And so you say, well, you got to go say sorry. And so they just stomp over to their brother or their sister and just mutter under their breath, Sorry. We, we as parents, right? All wise parents. Like we can see right through that like you didn't mean that. Well, just think about it. If we can be so discerning, how much more does an all-knowing God see through our hard-hearted, empty repentances? The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. Point number one, genuine repentance is more than words. Point number two, genuine repentance takes full responsibility. Because another way that we stop short of full repentance, right, we've already looked at saying the right words without the accompanying heart change. Uh, another way is we try to shift the blame. Right? We try to lessen our responsibility by just putting it anywhere else we can. And if you know the Bible, you know that that's a trick that's as old as mankind itself. You remember Adam? He sins in the garden. The woman that you gave to be with me, it's, it's her fault. So she, he's blaming Eve, and indirectly he's blaming God. And then Eve, right, not to be outdone herself, she gets in on the fun also. Now the serpent deceived me. It's his fault. But it's not just people that we blame. It's also circumstances that we can blame for our sin. Well, you don't know how stressful my job is. It was right there, sitting in front of me. Here's a big one. I was having a really bad day. Uh, there are few things that come as naturally to us as sinners as trying to justify our sin. But one sign of genuine repentance, that God himself has worked a real heart change within us, is that you're not quick to look for people or circumstances to blame. Because point number two, genuine repentance takes full responsibility. And so when David is confronted in 2 Samuel 12, right, you are the man. You're the guy that we're talking about here. Remember David earlier, when Nathan's telling him the story about the rich man and the poor man, he's all too eager to interrupt. But this time, 
when he's told you are the man, well, he's got nothing to say. Except, 2 Samuel 12, 13, I have sinned against the Lord. I, me, my, I, first person, I have sinned against the Lord. There's no blame game here. He's taking full responsibility. He doesn't blame others. Well, really, this is Bathsheba's fault. She put me in that position. This is Uriah's fault. Like, if he just listened to what I said, I wouldn't have had to kill him. He doesn't make excuses because of his circumstances. Got a lot of pressure running this kingdom. Uh, I needed an outlet for my stress. And it's not like I've done it many times. It's, I only did it once. He doesn't rationalize or justify his sin. Well, I had to cover it up. Because if I didn't, it would have been this whole scandal and the whole nation would have been at risk. He doesn't minimize his sin. Technically, I didn't kill Uriah. It was the Ammonites who killed Uriah. I wasn't even there. And he doesn't relativize his sin. Yeah, I, I might have done a, something that was a little bit bad, but it certainly wasn't as bad as what Joab did to Abner. No, there's no trace at all of any of those excuses. And you'll notice that's quite a contrast with his predecessor, King Saul. Because you remember when Samuel confronted him about the whole Amalekite situation? It was like excuse city. Well, was it me? It was the people who kept the best of the livestock. And listen, we were going to sacrifice them to the Lord anyway. Justifying and making excuses and rationalizing. But here with David, there's none of that. He takes full responsibility. And again, we see the same thing in Psalm 51. Just scan your eyes there real quick through that psalm and two things should jump off the page in this regard. First, David never blames anyone, any of his circumstances, for his sin. As a matter of fact, you'll notice that this psalm doesn't even name anybody else. Bathsheba, Uriah, Joab, like they were all involved in this, but they're not even named in the psalm because this is just about him and God. And second, just notice all the first-person pronouns that you see in this psalm. Me, right? Wash me, cleanse me, purge me, deliver me. My, right? My transgressions. These are my iniquities. This is my sin. And then I, I know my transgressions. I sinned. I was brought forth in iniquity. The entire psalm from beginning to end is David reflecting his heart of repentance taking responsibility for his sin. Point number two, genuine repentance takes full responsibility. Brothers and sisters, as we examine our own repentance, do we see a tendency towards defensiveness? Like if, when we're confronted on our sin, if we're quick to jump to excuses and rationalizations, well, here are the attenuating circumstances, and here's what I was going through at that time, and, and here's how this person and that person provoked me to all that. Well, all those things may be true, but the question still remains, did you sin? If so, 
what then does it mean for your repentance to take full responsibility for what you did? Point number two, genuine repentance takes full responsibility. Which leads to point number three, uh, genuine repentance sees sin as primarily against God. Genuine repentance sees sin as primarily against God. 2 Samuel 12, 13 again. David says, I have sinned against the Lord. Against the Lord I have sinned. And David rightly sees his sin as being primarily against God and he expresses that same exact sentiment in Psalm 51, verse 4. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Against you only. Now that is not to say that he didn't sin against anyone else. Of course he did. He sinned against Bathsheba. He sinned against Uriah. Right? Those are the two obvious ones. But he also sinned against Joab. Right? He makes him an accessory and an accomplice to his murder. He sinned against the other soldiers who died when Uriah was killed and their families. As the king, he sinned against his nation. As a husband, he sinned against his wives. As a father, he sinned against his children. Like, it's harder to think about the people that he didn't sin against in this episode than those whom he did sin against. But while it's true, while it is true that he sinned against all those people, David sees his sin first and foremost, primarily, like most problematically, as an offense against the holy God. Like, that's his primary concern that, like, eclipses all other concerns. Against you, you only have I sinned. An illustration might be helpful here. Uh, Suppose that uh, my wife were driving somewhere in our minivan by herself, and I get a call from someone telling me that there's been an accident involving my car, Sir, your car was found in a ditch on the side of the road and uh, the front bumper is damaged and there's some damage to the side mirror. And I'm like, okay, but what about my wife? Is she okay? That's the only thing that I care about. Oh, she's totally fine. They're, they're not a scratch on her. Man, your headlight assembly is looking rough right now. It's like, whatever, I don't care about my car. Well, I do care about my car and I do care about my wallet. Like, would you rather have significant damage and repairs or no damage and repairs. It's like, hmm, no, I definitely would prefer no damage and no repairs because I do care about my car and I do care about my wallet. But you see my point, comparatively, like compared to the safety and well-being of my wife, I could care less about my Honda Odyssey. And in that sense, I only care about her. Well, in the same way. It's not that David, in his repentant mindset, he doesn't care at all about all those other people that he hurt. Surely he felt great grief and sorrow about what he did to them. But, comparatively, like understanding that his sin was first and foremost against a holy God, that it ultimately all stemmed from his despising God and his word. That's why David says, Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. 
And that last phrase there, done what is evil in your sight, that's another fascinating part of David's transformation and thinking here. David now sees his sin as a problem primarily because it's evil in God's sight. And that, you might recall, brings us back to something that he said in the narrative in 2 Samuel 11. Remember 2 Samuel eleven twenty five. 25? David says to Joab, do not let this matter be evil in your sight. Like, it's not evil in my sight. Don't let it be evil in your sight. But then the chapter ends with the statement that the thing that David had done was evil in God's sight. And now here's David in Psalm 51. Like, in his repentance, he is agreeing with God's verdict. That you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Like, I agree with your verdict. Even though back then I said that this was not evil in my sight. Don't let it be evil in your sight, Joab. Now I see that it was evil in your sight, God. And so I repent. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Point number three. Genuine repentance sees sin as primarily against God. Brothers and sisters, I think oftentimes we are much, much quicker after we sin to see how we have hurt other people or even hurt ourselves with our sin than we are to see how we have gone against the holy God of the universe with our sin. And one symptom of that is that we can overly focus on the consequences, the earthly consequences of our sin, particularly in relation to other people, at the expense of grieving over the sin itself. But consider David's example here. Nathan's already told him that there's going to be some real serious earthly consequences to his sin. Your family's going to fall apart. Your kingdom's going to fall apart. Like, things are about to get real rough. But in Psalm 51, David never mentions any of those things. Like his only concern is getting right with God. That God would have mercy on him. That God would cleanse him. That God would create in him a clean heart. Like his grief has nothing to do with earthly consequences, severe as they might be. His grief has to do with the fact that he has sinned against God and done what is evil in his sight. And so here's the question for all of us. In our repentance, like when we're sorry about sin, what is it that really breaks us? What is it that really makes us grieve? Is it that we got caught? Is it the relationships and the trust that we've broken with other people? Is it the earthly consequences of what we've done? Or is it that we've sinned against a holy God? Here's some other ways to ask the same question. Do we repent of sins that nobody in the world has any idea about? That only you know and God knows.
And if we knew for sure that our sin would have no consequences in terms of affecting anybody else or anybody finding out about it or anybody knowing about it, would we still continue to do it? Or would we repent solely because it is sin against God? Point number three, genuine repentance sees sin as primarily against God. Point number four, genuine repentance restores joy. Genuine repentance restores joy. Something that we might miss if we're just reading through the account of 2 Samuel chapter 11 and 12, because the narrative there focuses more on what happened than on what was going on in David's heart. We might miss just how miserable David was while his sin was hidden. Listen to how David describes it in Psalm 51.3. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. My sin is ever before me. Like, no matter what he did in trying to cover it up, no matter what he did in trying not to think about it, no matter what he did in trying to put it out of his mind, like his unrepentant sin was just ever before him. He just couldn't carry on with his life. His sin haunted him every single day that he kept silent about it. Look what he says in Psalm 32, verses 3 and 4. The psalm is most likely referring to the same incident. David says, When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For, your day, for day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Like he felt God's heavy, heavy hand of discipline upon him. So much so that it was affecting him physically. His sin had separated him from his God. It had taken away that sweet fellowship and that communion that he once had. And David is absolutely miserable in his sin. Now from the outside looking in, things might have looked okay. After all, he's, he's still the king. He still lives in the palace. He still eats the best food. He's still the most powerful man in the kingdom. But as Jesus would ask, what does it profit a man if he has the whole world, yet is forfeiting his soul? I don't think it's far-fetched to say that this is the worst nine months or so, spiritually speaking, of David's life. Matthew Henry put it nicely. He penned no psalms. His harp was out of tune and his soul like a tree in winter. Reminds me of a story that's told about Robert Robinson. Uh, You probably recognize that name from the most famous hymn that he wrote, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. Uh, The story is told that Later in life, uh, Robinson is living in rebellion against God. He's very, very far from the things of God, distant from the Lord. He's on the train one day, and there's a woman in his train car who is singing the lyrics to the hymn that he once wrote. And she comes to him and she says, I love this hymn. Have you ever heard it? And he responds, Madam, I am the unhappy man who wrote that hymn many years ago. 
and I would give a thousand worlds if I had them, if I could feel now as I felt then. King David, Robert Robinson, right, they were miserable, they were joyless because of their unrepentant sin. But truly the most miserable person in the world is the believer living in disobedience. Right? My sin is ever before me. But, point number four, genuine repentance restores joy. Because genuine repentance removes that barrier, the barrier of sin that separates the child of God from the Lord. In your presence there is fullness of joy, David would write elsewhere. And genuine repentance restores that communion, that relationship. Just look at the repeated references to the restoration of joy that we see in Psalm 51. Verse 8. Let me hear joy and gladness. A joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken in my misery, let the bones that you have broken now rejoice. Or verse 12. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Uphold me with a willing spirit. David's joy is restored. And we see that even through some of the things that he does later in 2 Samuel chapter 12, like going to the house of the Lord to worship. David's joy is restored. And it's not because the earthly consequences are going to disappear. No, they're still very much there. But David's joy is restored because genuine repentance and the assurance of forgiveness that comes with it, genuine repentance grants a joy to David's soul that no earthly circumstances could ever rob. Friend, maybe as I'm talking about the misery of sin, like just how miserable it is for a believer to live in unrepentant sin, maybe I'm describing you you are living in unrepentant sin. Your conscience is just gnawing at you and there is this palpable lack of joy in your life. And even as you've been sitting through this sermon about repentance, like you're just miserable. Well, if that's you, I tell you that you need to repent today. Perhaps you're a true child of God. In which case, God in his kindness is not going to let you remain content in your sin. Or perhaps you're not a Christian and God is using your current misery to bring you to salvation. But either way, here's the most important thing. No matter how far you are from God right now, like no matter how distant you currently find yourself from him, just think about how distant from God David was at the beginning of 2 Samuel 12. Like, it's been a chapter and a half, almost a year, of just hardening his heart against God. But repentance for him was just one verse away. 2 Samuel 12, 13, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And in the same way, regardless of where you're at right now, like, you can repent today. This isn't something that you can only do down the line, in the future, when you're ready. You can cry out to God right now. 
more than just with words, but with a broken and contrite heart over your sin, taking full ownership and responsibility for what you've done, seeing your sin as primarily against the holy God regardless of the earthly circumstances. But today, if God grants you genuine repentance, you will find your joy restored or perhaps experience it for the very first time. Because point number four, genuine repentance restores joy. But maybe at this point, maybe you're wondering like, well, how can we be sure? Like, how can we be sure that our repentance, even if it's genuine, how can we be sure that our repentance will actually be accepted by God? That's a great question. And that brings us to our final point, point number five, which is that genuine repentance finds forgiveness in the gospel. Genuine repentance finds forgiveness in the gospel. Friends, this is really, really important for us to understand. God does not accept our genuine repentance because there's some merit or value to its genuineness. Because if God is sitting there grading us on our repentance, and if and only if our repentance is meritorious enough, then he'll accept it. And then he'll forgive us of our sin. No. Genuine repentance finds forgiveness in the gospel. That is, our repentance only has value because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Bible says that God is a holy God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Which means that his standard is perfection. Like James says, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. Why? Because God is a holy God who requires perfection. Which means, on the subject of repentance, that means that by the time we get to repentance, because repentance implies that we have already sinned, by the time we get to repentance, it's already too late. Like, we've already sinned against the holy God. We've already fallen short of his perfect standard. And we already deserve an eternity in hell. Now, God, in his mercy, he could extend some form of mercy to unrepentant, uh, sorry, to repentant sinners. But at the end of the day, like, they could not dwell with him in eternity in his heaven because of their unpaid for sin. And that's why we need the gospel. That's why the gospel is so important. Because the gospel says that the perfect life that we could never live, Jesus, the Son of God, has lived on our behalf. And that same Jesus went to the cross to die in our place, taking our sin upon himself that he might suffer the wrath of God in our place. And in exchange, he gives us his perfect, righteous meritorious record so that all who repent and believe in him might with their sin paid for with a perfect record of righteousness given to them credited to them that we who believe might dwell with him in an eternity in heaven 
You see, apart from that work of Christ on the cross, apart from the gospel, like it doesn't matter how genuine we might think our repentance to be. There is no forgiveness of sins. But because Christ died for the sins of his people, because of the gospel, well, his people can, when they sin, go to God in genuine repentance and find forgiveness for their sins. And point number five, genuine repentance finds forgiveness in the gospel. Now, did David, right, because it's his repentance that we've been studying here, did David understand the intricacies of the gospel like we do with the benefit of the New Testament? The answer is no. But he did, in faith, Believe, even as he's repenting here, even as Psalm 51 records his heart of repentance, even as he repents in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 13, he does in faith believe that God will provide a way for his people to be forgiven of all of their sins. How do we know that? Well, remember that the sins that David committed, specifically adultery and murder, they are capital crimes, right? Like those who, des- who do them deserve death under the old covenant law. Which means, very importantly, under the Old Testament sacrificial system, there is no provision for the atonement of those sins. Like you can read all about the sacrifices in the book of Leviticus. There is no sacrifice for the adulterer. There is no sacrifice for the murderer. That's what David means when he says in Psalm 51, verse 16, you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. Like there is no sacrifice, there is no burnt offering for the sins that he has committed. But at the same time, like you read this Psalm, Psalm 51, there is this sure confidence that David has that God will cleanse him. Look at verse 7. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. And so you say, how can that be? How can it be that he shall be clean and that he shall be whiter than snow when there is no sacrifice by which an adulterer or a murderer can have his sins atoned for? Well, there must be a greater sacrifice, a more perfect sacrifice, one so great that it can atone for all of the sins, including adultery and murder, of all of God's people. And that sacrifice, of course, is Christ on the cross in the stead of sinners. The gospel. You see, this psalm Psalm 51, and the entire Old Testament, for that matter, looked forward in faith to Jesus and his work on the cross. David looked forward to this greater atoning sacrifice that God himself would provide through his son. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So even as we study this Old Testament example, 
2 Samuel 12, Psalm 51, of repentance in David, we're once again reminded, point number five, that genuine repentance finds forgiveness in the gospel. So what can we say about repentance, genuine repentance, from the life of David? Well, genuine repentance is about more than words. There's a heart broken because of sin. A genuine repentance takes full responsibility, not looking to deflect and rationalize, but taking full responsibility. Genuine repentance sees sin as primarily against God. This is evil in his sight, and that's what matters most. Genuine repentance restores joy. It restores that fellowship that a believer has with his God. Most importantly, a genuine repentance finds forgiveness in the gospel. It's because of what Christ has done for us that repentance can find forgiveness. Let's pray. Father, your word says that you are the one who grants repentance. And so we pray that you would do that in our hearts. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.